hear very well. And I suppose if what he had to say was all right. <laughs> I know I've told him how to compliment me many times, but I don't know whether he did it just right or not. I appreciate very much the opportunity to get to speak to you tonight. We regret very much the circumstances that has brought it about, and that is the heart attack of Tony's nephew. And I know that we fervently pray for his recovery. I would like to say publicly concerning Tony, I count him as one of my blessings. He's been a friend and a helper to me in many ways more than he will ever know. And I'm delighted that he's able to be here tonight. And as I did think I heard Steve say, some of you have heard me preach before, and you came anyway. <laughs> but we're grateful that you are here. The passages of Scripture that were read a moment ago there's something in common about them. They both speak of a beginning. The first were the words of Jesus Christ. When he talked about a beginning, he was looking forward to it. In the second passage, it was the Apostle Peter who mentioned the beginning. And he was explaining to his Jewish brethren the events that had taken place at the household of Cornelius. And he was looking back upon it. It had already taken place. In between the time that Jesus spoke and the time that Peter spoke, there was a great beginning. And that beginning was recorded for us in Acts, the second chapter. There in the city of Jerusalem, there came the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the preaching of repentance and remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. Dear people, the things that took place on Pentecost, they were so significant. That was indeed a momentous day. It was a day of anticipation. It was a day of excitement. It was a day of wonder. It was a day of confusion to a lot of people, but it was a day of prophetic fulfillment as well. And it had the events that took place that day had various reactions from people. Some were confounded. Some were amazed. Some marveled. Some were in doubt. Some even succumbed to mocking making false accusations concerning those who were preaching and teaching. But the Apostle Peter, standing up with the eleven, began to explain what was taking place and that which they were seeing, developing right before their very eyes. He told them this is that that Joel the prophet had talked about. And he pointed out in Joel's prophecy, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he began to preach unto them concerning Jesus Christ. And in the sermon that he preached, he pointed out 
the evidences of the identity of our Lord. He pointed out about his resurrection. He pointed out about the fulfillment of prophecy and how the apostles were eyewitnesses not only of his resurrection but other evidences of his deity. And he explained to those people the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then he drew his conclusion from his sermon. That God hath made this same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. That was the target of his message. He pointed out the foundation upon which the Lord's church is built. He explained to them the identity of the Lord. He must have been very convincing. He must have been very persuasive. For the people that heard it obviously believed what he had to say, at least many of them. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And guided by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter told them to repent and to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I contend means that you shall receive the salvation that God had promised since the days of Abraham. Some 3,000 heard those instructions. The Bible tells us that 3,000 of them received that word, obeyed that word, and were baptized. And in verse 47, it says, The Lord added to the church those that were saved. The beginning of which Christ had pointed, the beginning to which the Apostle Peter pointed back, friend, that was the beginning of the church that Christ promised to build. That was the beginning of the church that he purchased with his own blood. That was the beginning of the church that he has promised to save. That was the beginning of the church that belongs to him. The church which is of Christ. Now, the question I want to raise with us tonight is, what happened to it? Now, that's a fair question. That's a proper question, because today in our religious world, there are many, many churches of which you are aware, and you'll hear people who profess to be preachers who say, well, go to the church of your choice, choose the church of your choice, that one church is just as good as another, you don't have to be a part of the church in order to please God, and on and on it goes. Inasmuch as there were established the one church that belonged to Christ on the day of Pentecost at the beginning, something must have happened to it to produce all of the various churches that exist in the world today. And some people, they say, well, one church is just as good as another, and one is no better than the other, but you know they don't believe that. They obviously have chosen one above all the rest, that they obviously must think it's better than all the rest for some reason or another. But it's not a question of what church do men think is better. Listen to my question, folks. Which church is right? 
Now, many people are offended by even asking such a question because it implies that not all the churches are right, doesn't it? Indeed, they all cannot be right when they teach contradictory things, when they do not follow the same standards. And I know that even in New Testament times, all the churches were not right. In the book of Revelation, we read of one of them becoming a synagogue of Satan. Now, I know that's not the right church. But it was a church. Now, I want you to hear this point. This is the point of my lesson. Not that you don't have to listen to the rest of it, but here's the point of the lesson. The church of which you read in the New Testament is the right church. I hope you can concur with that. And let me repeat it because that's the burden of what I'm trying to get across tonight. The church of which you read in the New Testament is the right church. It began at the right place in the city of Jerusalem, as prophesied. It began at the right time, the day of Pentecost, of which we have just read. It began with the right power, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the inspired apostles. It began with the right preachers, the apostles, Peter standing up with the eleven. It began with the right message, repentance and remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And it began with the right people, those that were saved. Now that's the right church. And that's the church of which you read in the New Testament. Now, sadly, the New Testament tells us what was going to happen to the church. The Apostle Paul wrote in a number of places about the church falling away. There would be an apostasy. I've often thought of the Apostle as he taught those things. How it must have grieved his heart to know that for which he gave himself so heartily. That for which he worked and labored and suffered. To even present the idea that the church would fall away from the truth. But yet he did. He warned the elders that there would be those that would arise to lead the church away. He warned the brethren in Thessalonica about the apostle, uh, the apostasy that was to come. And over and over again, we read about the warning of the church falling away. And the Lord talked about the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 and verse 5. How that they continued the apostate path that they were following, he would remove their candlestick. And I take that to mean they would no longer be identified among churches of Christ. Friend, history shows to us the church did fall away. It did apostatize. And here is a warning for me and for you. The church apostatized because it compromised. Now, I think that's a good phrase, not simply because it has words that sort of sound alike. But the brethren in the early first century, they compromised with Judaism, with paganism. Later on, there was compromise with Romanism and worldliness. This is just a matter of historical record. They compromised with the doctrines of men rather than adhering to, thus saith the Lord. 
to finally there was the dark ages of history when the Roman papacy was the dominant religious power. Now we might raise the question, during that time of falling away, why didn't somebody say something? Why didn't somebody try to stop it? Oh, my beloved, there were many that did say something. And there were many that did try to stop it. And they were literally and physically exterminated time after time, put to death because of their efforts to try to keep the church in the paths of thus saith the Lord. But eventually because of political and military concerns, there were men who could arise and speak out against the errors of Romanism and their lives would be preserved. There were men who arose with the ambition of reforming the existing religious condition. And one great thing that those men did, like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and many others, brought the Bible back to the people, where people could read the scriptures for themselves. So much so that it was soon said that the religion of the Bible was the Protestant religion because they were protesting Romanism. But the religion of the Bible was not Protestantism, dear folk. It's because they did not adhere to the Bible. The people began to follow the reformers rather than the Bible. They began to follow their teachers rather than thus saith the Lord. And they began to make various denominations among themselves. That's the birth of denominationalism, which is the dominant characteristic of religion in our country today. That's how denominationalism came into being. It's the, it's the product of the Protestant Reformation and the attempt to reform Romanism. But my dear people, let me remind you of something that I feel like most of you are already very well aware. It took place right here in our own vicinity. Many of you have heard about the Rocky Springs, Alabama Church. That's the oldest church of Christ in that state. Best I remember, there is a plaque there on the highway as you go down. I don't know if Tony might know about that. He's an authority on Alabama. <laughs> and tells us that that's the oldest church of Christ. But that's not the beginning of the story of Rocky Springs. It was about the year 1803 that some settlers came from North Carolina and they settled in your county and mine, Warren County. They established a community out here called Philadelphia. These people were religious people. They were from various and sundry Protestant denominations, some of which are not very well known by us today, but when they were prominent in England and prominent in the early days of America. English Presbyterian and Episcopalian and Scottish Presbyterians and others, they wanted to worship. They wanted to worship together, 
But they knew that they could not decide to follow this church or that church in respect to the dismissing other churches, so they decided quite wisely. We will just set aside all of these things of denominations that divide people, and we'll just come together and study the Bible. Well, this is what they did. They soon came to realize they were to assemble every first day of the week. They soon came to understand that they were to partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. They soon came to realize that they were to immerse people for the remission of sins. They called themselves simply the church. It was the church of Christ. They didn't establish a new church. They didn't try to reform an existing church. They did what the Bible teaches. In Luke chapter 8, they took the word of God, which is the seed of the kingdom. They sowed it into good and honest hearts. And when you do that, what does it produce, brethren? Every time it will produce the kingdom of God, which is the Lord's church. And that's what they did. Now, after a while, for some reason or another, the folks began to think it was getting a little crowded around this part. I don't know why they ever thought that. But anyway, they did. And some of them moved down to Rocky Springs, and they established the church there. You know, I'm proud to live beside Big Hickory Creek. Big Hickory Creek was the creek where the early church here in Philadelphia was established and where people were baptized. And we, we can be proud of the fact, not boastful, not arrogant, not self-righteously, but we can be proud that these people, they didn't come from the teaching of Alexander Campbell or Martin W. Stone or any great teacher among them. They simply took the word of God and planted that in their hearts and carried it out in their practice. And as a result, the Lord's church was restored among them. And that's what will happen every single time. And dear people, I tell you, the church that they established is the right church because it was the church after the New Testament. Now today, when people preach in this fashion, as I am attempting to do, you pay a price. You're called arrogant. You're bigoted. You're self-righteous. You're narrow-minded. You're sectarian. You know, today a lot of preachers are preaching more upon what people want rather than what God says they need. What people like and what entertains them and pleases them rather than what pleases God. It's people-oriented rather than biblical-oriented. And they say, don't tell people that we're the New Testament church. That's going to drive people away. Tell them that, that uh, we should embrace Christians in all the denominations. Well, I can't do that, and I won't do that, because I don't read anything like that in the Word of God, and you don't either. And they don't either.
They simply assert that Christians in all denominations, when you don't read of a single denomination in the Bible that ever has existed, does exist, or ever shall exist. And sometimes some of my brethren fail to remember that. The Lord's church is not a denomination. It's not a part of the body. It is the body, dear brethren. And there is but one body and but one church that the Lord established. Now, you preach like that, and I do and have for all these many years, longer than Stephen thinks. You're a right-winger. You're a traditionalist. You're behind the times. You're a sinful legalist. You're a spiritual dinosaur. You're a throwback. And some of these other labels of loving liberals that will be cast against those who will preach, thus saith the Lord. But I stand before you tonight unhesitatingly to affirm to you that the church of which I am a member is the church that you read about in the New Testament. And it is the right church. And I deny that that's arrogant. I deny that that's being bigoted. I deny that that's self-righteousness or being sinfully judgmental of other people. That's not the motive. That's not the reason I say these things. We can take the Bible, and you can take the Bible and prove it. It's not a matter of history. It's a matter of identification. How do you identify this which was established on the day of Pentecost? Imagine with me for a moment. Of course it can't be, but the Apostle Paul comes into our area. And he, of course, labored for the Lord's church in his day. And he would look for the church. How would he find it? What would he look for to identify it? Would it be the one with the biggest crowd, the largest contribution, the finest building, the one that had the most excitement, the most fun? What would he look for? Would he not look for identifying marks such as which we can read in the New Testament? I suggest to you one thing he would look for would be the right name. Now, you can almost hear somebody say, oh, names don't make that much difference. But, friend, names are important, and God thought names were important, and he gave things certain names, and he even changed names according to his will. So names are important. If you don't believe names are important, you go home and call your wife Fido, and I'll guarantee you, you'll find out that names are important. You know, the only ones that think names don't matter are those that's got the wrong name. They're the ones that say names don't matter. But you know, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. That's the church that is of Christ. It's his church. It belongs to him. In Romans 16 and verse 16, Paul talked about the churches of Christ salute you. And I heard, oh, you can't use that. I don't know why you can't. You know, if that scripture had said the Methodist church salutes you, they would have used it. 
and they'd had every right to use it because it would have been scriptural. If it had said the Baptist church salute you, if it could have used it, certainly they would have used it. They'd had a right to use it. It was a thus saith the Lord to use it. But it didn't say that, did it? What did it say? The churches of Christ salute you. Now that's not a title. That's a phrase that shows possession. To whom the church belongs. It belongs to Christ. And we ought never be ashamed to identify the church the way the Holy Spirit identified the church through the Apostle Paul. And he would look for that. And I think having looked for that, there's some other things he would want to know. He would want to know about our way of worship. And we could tell him, Paul, as did you. We meet upon the every first day of the week. We partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. We give of our means every first day of the week. We sing. We pray. We study the Word of God, as did the churches of which you read in the New Testament. And when we sing, we don't use mechanical instruments of music, and people want to know why. Why, it's the same reason we don't have Pepsi-Cola and donuts on the Lord's table. It's the same reason we don't have a holy dance or religious hee-haw or something like that and carrying on like wild people in worship. But it's a reverent worship unto God. When Paul hears of churches that would worship in such fashion as that, he would recognize it. Because that's the way he taught people to worship. And furthermore, he might ask, well, what about your preaching? Well, if some brethren were preaching, Paul might not recognize it. I would hope that Paul would recognize what I'm trying to say to you even tonight. I contend that any time a man stands before a congregation whether it be from the pulpit or in the classroom or whatever, he's under an obligation to preach and to teach in such a fashion and the message that the Apostle Paul would recognize it as the message that he preached. Sound words, sound speech that cannot be condemned. As the oracles of God, as Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, Preach the word, as Paul told Timothy. Indeed, preach the gospel of Christ. When you preach from the Bible, Paul would recognize that because, you know, he understood the Bible. He wrote such a goodly portion of the New Testament, he understood that. And if we preach from the Bible, we'll be preaching the same way that was heard by the right church. We'll not be preaching politics men's theologies, their creeds and disciplines and such as that. We'll not be preaching the speculative theories that men have concocted. We'll preach book, chapter, verse, thus saith the Lord. Brethren, if we ever reach the point that that's not the basis of our message, we have no right before God to exist. And I believe you know that. And I believe you believe that. 
Because the Bible Branch Church is a church which I am quite proud to recommend to my brethren as one that stands four square upon thus saith the Lord. And that's the way it must be if it's going to be the right church. Well, Paul would want to know, well, just how are you folks organized? I hear some people sometimes say, oh, the church is not an organization, it's an organism. I don't know why they should think it's either or, it's both. It is an organism. It's a living body, to be sure. But it's also an organization. It's a kingdom. It has a structure about it. And Christ is the head. He's the king of the kingdom. And his kingdom is organized into local congregations, overseen by elders, served by deacons, all the members making up the body. No high ecclesiastical body ruling over all the churches, such as is characteristic of many churches today, but not characteristic of the church that you read about in the Bible. You ever have anybody ever ask you, where's the headquarters of the church of Christ? Why, that's easy to answer. The headquarters is where the head is. The head is in heaven. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. The churches, they're independent different bodies, local bodies, they can cooperate one over another, but never to take the authority one over the other. Paul would recognize that because that's what he taught. That's what he wrote. That's what he demonstrated. And then, of course, eventually he would ask, well, how do you become a member of the church? Well, we would just simply say, Paul, nothing's required except what is required to become a Christian. Nothing is required except that which is required to be saved. Because, after all, that's what the church is, isn't it? People who have been saved. Saved because they have heard, believed, and obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, being washed clean by the blood of our Lord, and added by the Lord to that sacred body. When you become a Christian, you automatically and simultaneously become a member of the church that you read about in the Bible. And you don't have any experience that you have to tell. You don't have to submit yourself to be voted on by other people. Paul wouldn't recognize anything like that. Paul would recognize when people say you must obey the gospel and the Lord adds you to the church. But let me ask which one more question. Paul would sort of know, what do you teach as the plan of salvation? Oh, brethren, there's such a tragedy in our world that people are hearing all kind of messages as to how to be saved except the message that Paul preached. Paul didn't know anything about direct operation of the Holy Spirit separate and apart from the Word. You'll hear that. Paul wouldn't preach that. He wouldn't recognize that. Pray the sinner's prayer. Paul said, I never taught anybody that in all the days of my apostolic life. He wouldn't recognize that. Faith only, grace only. Paul never taught anything like that. Yet that's what you hear in the religious world today. Just be a good moral person and everything will be all right. Paul wouldn't recognize that. He didn't teach that. He taught contradictory to that. We would simply say, Paul, we teach just what you taught. And what was that? 
You must hear the gospel of Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and render obedience to him when he tells you, except you repent, you will repent. And as Paul taught people to confess Christ, you must confess Christ. And as Paul taught people to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Paul, we teach the same thing. He would recognize that message, brethren. He would recognize that plan of salvation because that is an identifying mark of the church that was established on the day of Pentecost. Now, I want to ask you this question. Since the apostles taught that way, and they did, were they arrogant? Were they being self-righteous? Were they trying to put people down in sectarian manners? Were they bigoted? Were they sinfully legalistic? Were they irrelevant to the times? Or were they right? You know they were right because they were guided by the Holy Spirit in the things that they taught. And brethren, today when people will preach and teach the same things that they did, we can know that's right. And we need to uphold it and not be intimidated by anybody, anytime, anywhere, over any point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you follow the teaching of the Bible, you can know that it's right. And until you do, you can know you've got a way to go. I want to close this lesson by reminding you of an invitation that those of the church extend to the world. And go back to the time when Moses was talking to one of his in-laws. As you know, ancient and physical Israel were God's chosen people. That nation was chosen because through that nation the Messiah was to come. And they were in the wilderness on their way. Moses told his in-law, says, we're journeying to a place which God has given us. Come thou with us, and we will do thee good. For the Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. The Lord's church is spiritual Israel. The Lord's church is God's chosen people. He chooses those who choose him. They are the elect. They are the restored church of the New Testament. They are the right church. And brethren, we have no right to be wrong before God. We have the right to be right. And we can be right. And we can be humble about it and we can be firm about it at one and the same time. When a church has the wrong name, the wrong worship, the wrong doctrine, the wrong organization, the wrong terms of membership, the wrong plan of salvation. How can that be the right church? But when a church has the right name and offers the right worship and has the right doctrine and the right organization 
preaches the right terms of membership in the plan of salvation, how can that be the wrong church? That's the right church. And though there be those of multi-diversity who want to have everything is okay, I'm okay, you're okay, that's a big lie. That's not so. So many people are deceived by that classic little phraseology. They think that makes them so tolerant and so big-hearted and so kind. They don't realize it makes them so wrong. You can't go to heaven going your way. Hear me now, and then I'm through. There's one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ and through the doctrine of Jesus Christ, brethren. And we must hear it, believe it, and obey it, and live it. We'll go to heaven that way, and those who won't go that way won't go to heaven. Do you believe that? If you believe the truth, you'll believe that. Let us dedicate ourselves, therefore, all the days that God might permit us to live upon this earth to be a member of the right church. And if you have not yet come to Christ, won't you do so tonight? If you've never been baptized into Christ, won't you be baptized tonight? If you've wandered away and have not been faithful, won't you be restored to the Lord's church tonight? Come thou with us. The Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. Make your wishes known as together we stand and sing our song.